All right, everyone, go ahead and open up to John chapter 11. It's a very, uh, it's a very familiar story that we're going to look at this morning. The entire chapter, John chapter 11, it's a long chapter. It's 57 verses long, and it's, uh, it's just, it's, a, it's one long story, and it's a fantastic story. And it's one that, like I said, we, we know well. But this is the only place in the Gospels where this story is found. This, uh, this is actually not in the Synoptic Gospels. And this is the story of Lazarus and Mary and Martha and, of course, Jesus. So open up to 11th, 11th chapter of John. Do we have a page number in the... 1066, 1066, thank you. And I'm just going to read the first 16 verses of that chapter. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped her feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the son of God may be glorified through it. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go again to Judea. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to waken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. This is God's word. All right, so we start out, we start out, Jesus, the last thing that had just happened in uh, chapter 10 is he had a, this, one of his fiercest confrontations with the Pharisees in Jerusalem. And it says at the end that he went away across the Jordan again to the place where John had been baptizing at first. He's out in the wilderness in, a, in the plain of the Jordan and where he's at, it's about, I think it's about 1,100 feet below sea level. And the town of Bethany is actually just about a mile and a half east of Jerusalem. It's a suburb of Jerusalem, really. And today, the wall in Jerusalem, I believe, goes in between um, the, the, the city of Jerusalem and what, is, what was then the village of Bethany. So it's, it's occupied now by Muslims. Um, and that's, that's where it is today, but it's really, it's really just right over the Mount of Olives from the city of Jerusalem. And so it's a place where Jesus spent a lot of time. Um, there were, there were people there who had a house 
was Mary and Martha and Lazarus, where Jesus would stay with his disciples when they, were, when they came to Jerusalem for the pilgrimage feasts, I think three times a year. So especially during the Passover, Jesus would come and he would stay there. And it was just maybe a 20-minute walk over the hill into Jerusalem. And so that's where Bethany is, but it's 20 miles it's 20 miles west of where Jesus is at the beginning of this chapter. So Jesus is about 20 miles away, and it's a 4,000-foot elevation gain and 20 miles. And so it's a, it's a long day's uphill walk to get from where Jesus is to, to where the, um, the house is, where this is all happening near Jerusalem. And so that's Bethany, this village um, where Mary and her sister Martha and, her, and their brother Lazarus lived. And then John also gives us a little note of something that, uh, that doesn't happen until chapter 12. So we're not going to comment too much on it. It's, that's verse 2. It says, Mary, this was the same Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair. And it was her brother, who, who, Lazarus, that was ill. And that, that all happens at the very beginning of chapter 12. So we're going to look at that in a few weeks. We're going to spend six weeks all together on this story of Lazarus and Mary and Martha, um, including, the, including the familiar resurrection of Lazarus and then the outworking of it. And so we're going to spend, this is the first of six weeks that will, that will be in this portion of the text. Um, and this morning, I think the, our, our text here breaks down neatly into three, into three sections. The first is the prayer the second is um, the delay, and the third is, um, is the result or the, uh, the outcome, Jesus moving towards the situation. All right, so very, very quickly, right off the bat, it says in verse 3, the sister sent to him saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. <coughs> now, have you ever thought before while you're reading through the book of John that that's a prayer? Has that ever occurred to you? If Jesus, is, if Jesus is God in the flesh, then anytime someone asks him for help, anytime someone comes to him saying, here's a need, here's something, here's something I would really like from you, here's something that I need from you, will you heal me? Will you heal someone I love? It's a prayer. It's a prayer. And this is a really, when we look at it, this is a really peculiar kind of prayer, isn't it? There's no request per se. It's just a piece of information. It's a little piece of information. It says, Lord, he whom you love is ill. So it's a little prayer, but I think that it, I think it teaches us, I think we see three things about prayer here in this, just these little, what is it, seven words. And the first thing is um, the goal of prayer. And the second thing is the expectation of prayer. And the third thing would be the result of prayer. So let's look, at the, let's look at the goal of prayer. Lord, he whom you love is ill. Now, we, we typically think of prayer as something, as an opportunity for us to approach God and to get something from God, don't we? I mean, we, that's, that's just kind of, it seems logical. That's, that's what prayer is for when we pray we pray to God, we're going to him with some need and we're asking him to meet that need. 
And Jesus himself talked about prayer as if this was the case, as if this was what prayer was for. He said, when you have a need, bring it to the Lord in prayer. He did say that. So that's not, that's not a wrong way to think about it. But I think that what we see here is actually really, really beautiful because what they do is they come to Jesus, like we said, it's just with a piece of information. He whom you love is ill. And if there's a request in this line, it's insinuated. It's almost a, just a whisper of a request. He whom you love is ill. Won't you do something? And that part of it's unspoken, right? That part of it is kind of implicit in what is actually said here. They're, they seem to be informing Jesus about something that should matter to him. Do you see that? And so right off the bat, I think one thing I want to say is, well, let me ask you this. Do you think Jesus knew that Lazarus was sick? You think there's any chance that he was 20 miles away and was taken off guard by this, by this news? No, I think, I think he already knew. So what does that mean? They, they come to Jesus and they say, Lord, he whom you love is ill. Are they really informing him? What are they really doing? They're connecting with him. You see that? They're not informing him. They're, they're certainly not demanding anything of him. It's, they're reaching out and touching him. And that's the very first thing about prayer that I think it's good for us to be reminded of. And one of the other things that this means is even if you think, even if you think, oh, I, I don't need to pray. I don't need to tell God what's on my heart. He already knows. Say it anyways. Do it anyways. Come to him. He does know. That's the point. He already knows. But you need to say it. And here's why. The real goal of prayer, the real goal of prayer is not to inform God of anything that he already knows because he's omniscient. He knows everything already. And the real goal of prayer is not to get something from God, not at least primarily. The real goal is to, you may think of it this way, initiate an encounter with God, to connect with him in the way that they're doing right here, to connect with God. And here's the thing that I love about prayer, and this dawned on me recently, is that when we pray, we're not so much, we're, we're really not telling God anything he doesn't know. And we're really not bossing him around. We're not activating God to do something for us. What we're really doing is we're opening a door and then immediately we become the subject and he becomes the one who's acting, right? You're opening a door to someone who's far more powerful and who's far wiser than you are. That's what prayer is. And whatever happens next, I can almost guarantee you it won't be what you expected. Not when he's really doing it. And that's the beautiful thing about prayer is that we don't, we don't tell God what to do and we don't tell God things that he already knows. We open the door, we connect with God, and then it creates an opportunity. What it, what it does is it takes an earthly concern and it moves it into the realm of heavenly action. That's prayer, okay? And in the realm of heavenly action, anything can happen because God is creative. He's the creator. And I'll tell you what, typically I've gotten to the point where I may come to God with a request. I have a need. Here's my request related to that need. 
But I'm completely okay with the fact that I am far less creative and I am far less wise than God. So here's my solution, God, but you do what you want. And don't you kind of see that in their prayer? We don't know what else to say, but he whom you love is ill. That's the first thing. The second thing is the expectation of prayer. What do you expect? What do you expect from God? I think far too often we do come to God with a specific request, and then we consider our prayer to have been successful if that request is met, right? But what if it takes a long time? What if, what if, that's, what if your request is actually not the thing that God chooses to do because there's something better to be done. So when you come to God, expect what it means to pray in faith is not, here's what I want you to do, and that's the only, that's the only answer that I will accept, right? What it means to pray in faith is to come to God and to lay it at his feet and to expect that he will do something, something, if not the specific thing that you're requesting of him, something. And we see that here too. He whom you love is ill. We don't know what he's going to do. I mean, you can kind of hear it. They think they know what he's going to do. They think they know what would be the logical thing for a healer to do when somebody he loves is ill, but they don't say it. They leave it up to him. And that's the way we're to pray too, is to expect that um, if God... If what you think is the solution to whatever your need is, is the best solution, God will do that. If it's not the best solution, he'll do something else. But he will do something. Okay, that's the second thing. And the third thing is the result or the outcome. <clears throat> we actually have to look into, ahead a little bit into verse 4 for this. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Do you see that there? He says it is for the glory of God. So the outcome of prayer, the outcome of the prayer of faith is not just the solution to a problem. It's not, not just a need being met. That's far, too, that's far too small of a thing for God. That's easy. That's, he could snap his fingers. God could have, how many times did Jesus heal somebody from a distance? He didn't even need to walk to Bethany, right? He didn't need to walk all the way up there. He could have just done it from where he was 20 miles away down in the plain of Jordan. He could have done it from a distance. But see, that's not what he chooses to do. And the reason is, he says in verse four, it is for the glory of God. So the outcome of prayer, when this all works, when you come to God with a need and you say, Lord, here's my need, and here's what I think, here's what I think would resolve it, but God, you do, what, you do what you want. You do what's best, and I, I will expect that. Whatever you do will be best. What happens then is you don't just get the answer to your prayer. You actually see God's glory. You get to see God's glory. And that's what's going to happen with these people because they sent a messenger all the way out to Jesus to say, Lord, the one you love is ill. And he didn't, he didn't answer their prayer in the way they thought he would. 
but he does answer their prayer and they do see a lot more than they ever thought because of the way he answers their prayer. So they've laid it out there. Moving into verses four through six, they've laid this request out there for Jesus. And what is Jesus going to do? Yeah, not much. He's in no hurry. That's why I entitled this Taking His Sweet Time. He's in no hurry. Jesus heard it. He said, this illness does not lead to death. Yes, it does. We'll get to that. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. What? This is, this is kind of weird, isn't it? If your loved one was sick at home, really sick, like they could die, would the th- and you, you loved them so much, does this make any sense to you? Let's, let's, let's back up and take it like this. Someone you love dearly is at home ill, and you love them so much that you wait two days to take them to the hospital. Does that compute? That's what it says. It says that right there in verse five and six, take them together. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So that word so is a, is a cause and effect word. It means that Jesus waited two days to do anything because he loved them. Do you see that? It says that because Jesus loved these three people, He didn't do anything for two days. What's going on here? Not only that, but we we also have the problem that when Jesus says this illness does not lead to death, well, he either doesn't know the future, which we know isn't true, which he does, or he knows something that we don't know, which he does. So he knows something we don't know, and he's telling his disciples, and possibly the messenger, I don't know, it doesn't say where, what this messenger did after he responded. But he says, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. It's possible that that was his reply, his answer that he sent back with the messenger to Mary and Martha, but we don't know that for sure. He may have been also talking to the disciples. So here's the thing. This is a passage. This is possibly the best passage in the Bible to address the the topic of unanswered prayer. Because who can relate to praying about something urgent only to get the feeling that God's in no hurry to take care of this? Who can relate to that? I hope all of us can relate to it. If you can't relate to it, you've probably never prayed about something extremely urgent because this is always, almost always, how it feels. And it can leave us, it can leave us holding the bag. It can leave us feeling like, I mean, take your time, God. It's only my health, right? It's only my marriage. It's only my career, That's only my most important relationship in the world. 
It's only my status in the community. Whatever it is, we're coming to God with something that's extremely important. And when he doesn't act in a way that we recognize as resolving our problem, our need that we're coming to him with, it leaves us feeling like, oh, no big deal, right? When is God going to do something? When is God going to do something? So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. And I think there's a, there's a challenge and there's a temptation here. There's a challenge to us and there's a temptation for us. And the challenge, the challenge is this. When we pray and when God does something, when God doesn't do something, when he fails to act in a way that we might expect, are we going to continue to believe that God is good and that he's capable of resolving this issue? Are we going to continue to believe in the goodness of God when the odds are against it? And then the temptation is to despair. And I want to say that when, when you're hurting, when you pray, and nothing happens or nothing seems to happen, that's okay. It's okay to be in pain. It's okay to be confused and disoriented and worried. That's okay. But don't give in to despair because the real issue is what we make of, of Jesus and his power and his love. Elizabeth Elliot said it like this. She said, our vision is so limited, we can hardly imagine a love that does not show itself in protection from suffering. The love of God is of a different nature altogether. Let me read that again. Our vision is so limited, we can hardly imagine a love that does not show itself in protection from suffering. The love of God is of a different nature altogether. It does not hate tragedy. It never denies reality. It stands in the very teeth of suffering. The love of God did not protect his own son, and he will not necessarily protect us from anything that will make us more like Jesus. Do you know who Elizabeth, Elizabeth Elliot was? Her husband was a missionary, and he was killed. He was killed by the tribe that he was trying to reach with the gospel early in the 20th century. Two years later, Elizabeth Elliot flew back to that same tribe and preached the gospel to them again, and there was a revival, and they got saved. So this was a person who knew about, you think she was praying for her husband's safety when he flew down there and was killed? That was God's answer to that prayer. But did she give up on God's goodness? No, she didn't. Two years later, she marched right back down there with the same message, and this time it took. And that was God's answer to her prayers. Do you see it? That God's answer to our prayers, even our most desperate, especially our most desperate prayers, it usually takes longer than we would like. And it's never what we expected, but it's always something far beyond what we had in mind. <clears throat> and that's where we get to see the glory of God.
Oswald Chambers, Oswald Chambers took it even a step further. In my utmost for his highest, the May 19th issue, so you can look it up and read it later. Um, he went so far as to say that, that he, he felt sorry for any Christian whose life was basically perfect. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. He said he felt sorry for a person like that. Because what, what opportunities do you have to come to God and to bring him your heart, to lay your heart open, and then just to see what he does? Okay? He, said, um, he also said this about despair in that same, in that same article. He said, some, some extraordinary thing happens in the heart of a person who holds on to the love of God when all the odds are against God's character. And I think that's absolutely beautiful. So let me put it like this. Because these verses, unless you see this clearly, these verses don't make any sense. Talking about verses five and six. Now Jesus loved Martha and Mary and Lazarus. He loved them. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he waited two days to do anything. That doesn't make any sense unless you get this right here. Is it better for Jesus to heal Lazarus or is it better for Jesus to let Lazarus die and raise him from, from the dead? Which one's better? The one that he ended up doing, right? That's the only way we can interpret this story. So let me ask you this. Aha, I gotcha. <laughs> is it better... Is it better for Jesus to protect us from suffering? Or is it better for, for us to suffer and then see Jesus pull our suffering inside out into something beautiful? Yeah. Yeah. And this is, the, this is the whole point. This is the whole point of this story, and this is the point of prayer. This is what happens when we pray in the faith that God will do something, and whatever he does is, will be best. So let's finish. Let's finish the passage. Verse 7. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. And are you going there again? Jesus answered, aren't there 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to waken him. The disciples said, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he'll be okay. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I'm glad he, that I wasn't there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. Good old Thomas, my namesake. So well, let's go with him. You can die too. All right. So two things I want to note here. One is the boldness of Jesus. And the other is the power of Jesus. First of all, the boldness. And right away, it's obvious, you know, after two days, when the, when the situation had advanced enough that Jesus knew, now, now we can show them something real. We can show them something powerful. 
Now he says, let us go to Judea again. So taking this all the way back to the theme of prayer, when God delays to answer a prayer, that's not because he can't. It's because he's acting on his own timing. And his own timing has to do with things that we usually can't see, we're not aware of. He says, let us go to Judea again. And the disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were, they were going to stone you. You going back there? That was just a few days ago. And Jesus says, oh yeah, I'm, I haven't waited two days because I'm afraid of them. That's not why we didn't go. It's for some other reason. He says, yeah, aren't there 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he doesn't stumble because he sees, sees the light of this world. What he's saying to them is that those Pharisees, those men you're afraid of, they're, stu- they're stumbling around in the dark. But you're, you're walking with the light of the world. Don't be afraid. And that's for us too. That's for us too. Jesus is saying that um, there is a type of safety in the, the kind of spiritual discernment and wisdom that Jesus imparts to his people. And so he's bold. He doesn't, he's not bothered by opposition. He's not bothered by enmity. He's going to go right back up to Jerusalem because, well, because why? Because the one who he loves is now dead. And he's going to go do something. So he's going right back. But then there's one more thing to deal with in this passage, and that is their confusion. Their confusion when he tells them what's going on. He says in verse 11, after saying these things, he said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. And they have no idea what he's talking about. So the, the disciples said to him, Lord, if he's, if he's sleeping, he'll feel better, right? Which is just good. That's just good medicine, right? You need, you need your rest when you're not feeling well. What, what's going on here? What's going on here is that no one had ever heard anybody talk about death this casually before. Ever. There's, there's echoes. There's foreshadows of resurrection in the Old Testament. They're there. But until this moment, no one had ever heard someone refer to death as sleep. Now, you and I are familiar with it, if we know our Bibles, because the Apostle Paul talked about death like sleep. It's in 1 Corinthians 15, which is the resurrection chapter, right? It's the resurrection chapter of the Bible. I'll read you a few verses here. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there's no resurrection? But if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ himself has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ. And if Christ has not been raised, verse 17, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. This is the verse I want you to see. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. Those who have fallen asleep in Christ. What does Paul mean by that? Those who have died. So why does he use two words there? Did you catch that? It's right there in verse 18. Those... If Christ has not been raised 
from the dead, then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. He uses one word, which is, um, which is koimeo, and it just means to lie down and sleep. But then he uses another word for perished, which is apolumi, which means to completely destroy. And so what he's saying is there's a difference. There's a difference between the death of the physical body and the absolute annihilation of a person. Do you see that? So what Jesus, what Jesus is saying is something that Paul further develops in his, in his letters, and it's this idea that for those who are in Christ, death is not anything different than just a good sleep. It's a restful experience. That's what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. Look at this. Look at his power. This man is dead. He's rotting in a tomb at the moment Jesus says this. And he says, he's just sleeping. I'm going to wake him up. Do you, uh, do you understand what kind of claim to power that is? It's an incredible statement for him to make. And of course they misunderstand him. How else are they supposed to interpret this? We don't talk about death like it's sleep. At least they didn't then. And still today, some of us, a lot of Christians, also don't act as if this was true, that, that Jesus could just wake us up when it's time. I really like what the commentator Matthew Henry said about this verse, which is that for the believer, for the person who has put their faith and their trust in Jesus for salvation, why shouldn't death be like a good sleep? Like you, you, you taking off the, the clothing, this body, and you're setting it aside to be mended, right? And washed. And then you're going to put it back on in the morning. That's the way that the scripture talks about death and resurrection. Like it's falling asleep and waking up. That's the idea. I want to close with this because it's just... I feel like there's a, there's a lingering question over all of this. Which is, which is kind of how could Jesus... What, I don't want to say what right does he have, but how could Jesus be so flippant? How could he be so casual about the pain that's happening in this town 20 miles away? How could he be so seemingly casual about our own suffering and the hard things that we're going through? Think about Jesus' prayer life. What was his prayer life like? He loved prayer, right? He prayed every day, every chance he got. He loved, I mean, the way I read the Gospels, Jesus loved nothing better than to go away by himself and sit on the top of a mountain in the wind and just spend time with his father in prayer, didn't he? He absolutely loved to pray, Jesus did. He loved that connection with God. It was his food. But there came a time 
when he needed God the most and his prayer went unanswered. When he was hanging on the cross and things couldn't have been worse for him. And he cried out, why have you forsaken me? Which means that in that moment, heaven had turned a deaf ear to Jesus. And in that moment, he became Lord of the the unanswered prayers. Jesus knows what it's like to be, to feel like God doesn't hear you. To feel like God is taking his sweet time. Jesus knows. Jesus knows it better than any of us. But the promise of the cross and the promise of the resurrection is that in that moment when God seems to have turned a deaf ear to your prayer, he's preparing something. He's preparing something for you that you never expected. And you're going to get to see a glimpse of God's glory when that happens. So the real challenge for us is to believe that in these times when God isn't answering our prayers quickly enough or the way that we thought, to believe that, that really whatever it is that we've come to him with, whatever seems so urgent and large, is really just a small thing compared to what God is bringing around the long way. You see that? And I'll leave you with these words too. C.S. Lewis, don't hold anything back. Nothing that you have not given away will be really yours. Nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. And I have to close by saying that um, these things that we've been looking at, these are true of, of God's people. These are true of those who have put their faith in Jesus for their salvation, for their righteousness. Those who have a relationship with God on the basis of Christ's work. It's, these things are true for those people. If you haven't put your faith in Jesus, don't take this as a promise for you yet. Okay? Because there are, a lot of, there are a lot of people in the culture who have tried praying without having a relationship with God and their prayers really do go unanswered. And I know this sounds like inside-outside talk, like it only works if you're in. I'm just trying to be honest with you. Because if you haven't put your faith in Jesus, that's the first thing you need. And your prayers won't work until then. Because until then, you're not praying in the name of Jesus. You're praying in your own strength and in your own resources. Do you see that? That's important. Because so much of what gets talked about in our culture as, oh, prayer changes things. Well, I don't, God changes things. And if you have a relationship with the God who can change things, then yes, I suppose that's true. But apart from faith, Prayer doesn't change anything. So you have to pray in faith. And that's important too. And if you have any questions about that, please see me right after the service today. Let's pray and then we'll sing one more hymn.